This morning I thought I'd preach about wisdom, because all of the readings have, in a way, something to do with the idea of wisdom, certainly the reading from Proverbs. And so it might be important to talk about what we mean, what the Bible means, uh, when it speaks of what wisdom is. Um, you know, in our culture, and always there has been a great appeal to esoteric wisdom, you know, knowing something that not everybody knows, or uh, believing that there's something secret that we need to, wisdom that we need to learn in order to be able to understand uh, the way things work. But the biblical witness has a, has a particular understanding of the plural ways we understand the nature of wisdom. Christian people uh, in the New Testament have an understanding of what wisdom is as it is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. So one of the words that uh, we use as a synonym for wisdom, for example, in John's Gospel is Jesus as the logos, the word, the organizing principle, the plan for how we understand uh, the deep things of human existence. So this morning I want to talk about wisdom generally, about what Proverbs has to say about it, or this part of Proverbs, and then about the epistle uh, of James, where we have an admonition to bridle the tongue. <laughs> and then we have Jesus um, weighing in against the, the conventional wisdom about the nature of messiahship and what the Messiah is going to be like and how we understand the ways and the means that we might identify who the Messiah is. So first, uh, wisdom in the Bible is uh, a book in the, in the Bible called the Book of Wisdom. Uh, but there is a whole section in the Hebrew Bible that we call the wisdom literature. And when I was in seminary, it was a, a separate uh, class that we had to take in during the three years that we were in seminary about the wisdom literature. So it includes the wisdom of Solomon. It includes the book of Proverbs. It includes the book of Job. It includes Ecclesiastes and so on. So it's a particular... A genre in the Hebrew Bible, and it's one of the locations where people wonder how in the world these books ever got in to the canon of the Old Testament, for example, particularly Ecclesiastes. So the, the, the group, the birds, who sang uh, a, a song many years ago uh, from the Ecclesiastes, uh, you know, was like, oh man, this is really heavy stuff. <laughs> now, the interesting thing that's part of the blessing of the Revised Common Lectionary in terms of what it is that we read is also a reminder and an emphasis that wisdom in Hebrew and in Greek is feminine. So there is a view that we would say is wisdom is personified as a woman born of God before all ages and active with God in the work of creation. The Greek word for wisdom, by the way, is Sophia. So a young woman named Sophia, one hopes when their parents give her that name that she will fulfill it as she lives. <laughs> But one never knows, does one? You know? In any case, 
Here's in the Hebrew Bible, certainly, what wisdom can mean uh, in the tradition. Technical skill, the art of government, simple cleverness, the practical skill of coping with life, the pursuit of a lifestyle of proper ethical conduct. Sometimes uh, wisdom is also understand, understood as prudence, one of the cardinal virtues. In the, in the Greek reckoning, the, the, the cardinal virtues, you know, justice, fortitude, prudence. Uh, prudence was the most important because it governed the way in which we live those virtues out to, to, to seek the good. So part of uh, a wise person is to seek a life where we uh, want to achieve some species of ethical um, strength. Maybe that's the best way to put it, not ethical perfection. And so wisdom is about that. So today from Proverbs, we have a reading. It's really kind of like a sermon that speaks about woman wisdom, but it also speaks about wisdom understood in a certain way. Now, within the wisdom literature, here's 3995 material, so you can take as much of this or leave it as you want. Within the wisdom tradition, there are various views about the various books in the wisdom tradition. And Proverbs probably constitutes a conservative, very traditional understanding of the way the ancients understood wisdom. Whereas Job and perhaps Ecclesiastes represent perhaps a more liberal view than we read about in Proverbs. And what do I mean when I say that? Proverbs, at least the part we read today, and we're going to be reading through Proverbs for a while, Proverbs say, uh, speaks about wisdom, that uh, she's walking through the streets, uh, nobody's paying attention, and so forth. Wisdom is something that you ought to know. In other words, it presupposes when you read this that you already know what wisdom is. And you're not paying attention. And therefore, all of the adversity that comes your way is the result of your own behavior. It's determinism, is what it's called in the fancy language. And most of us uh, believe that in large part that's true in our lives, I would think, isn't it? That uh, you sort of... Uh, your own behavior produces the circumstances you're in, whether they be positive or negative. And so uh, it's, in a sense, all up to you. And so if you believe that, then uh, it's pretty uh, centered in, in your own behavior and action, in your relational life and in your emotional, uh, interior emotional, spiritual, and mental states. Now, the book of Job, on the other hand, says that, you know what, sometimes things happen to you that aren't your fault. Job was a good man. He didn't do anything wrong. And he was struck by this bet that God had made with the Satan. We're going to hear about Satan in Mark's gospel. Remember, Satan doesn't mean the devil. It means the advocate. So it's the forces... Uh, that exist in the world and in relation to life with people that seek to uh, advocate a particular way or plan of action that may not be the best one. So in this particular case, 
uh, Job is afflicted, and it's not his fault. But today, we're focusing on the idea that, you know, things uh, that happen are the result of our own conduct. My grandparents used to say, you know, people really create their own hell on earth. (laughs) Have you heard that? And it's largely true, you know. So in some way, this has something to do with that, that we need to focus on it. So what I'm saying is that the reading from Proverbs has, is sort of an introduction to an internal, interior conversation that we have with ourselves about how come we're in the state we're in. Now, I'm not speaking about just the negative states. I'm also speaking about the successes, you know. So for me, it's always uh, the idea, perhaps, of what is the role of serendipity in the way in which we live. And I've repeated this ad infinitum since I've been here. When I moved to the Silicon Valley from Marin County, I was just amazed. It was in the middle of the, we're flying high in April. And everybody's enjoying the fruits of the Silicon Valley boom. And there wasn't much attention paid to serendipity. Being the right person in the right place at the right time. Or the understanding that serendipity is both positive and negative. Sometimes you and I can get caught, like Job, in the midst of a maelstrom of negative serendipity. So we need to think about that when we think about the cultivation of wisdom because the definition I use all the time in sermons, practical wisdom, is the accumulated response to adversity, the learning that we have accumulated in response to adversity and how we understand what that might mean for us as we live. So Proverbs sets us up today to begin to do a reflection about the nature of the practical skill of coping with life and the pursuit of a lifestyle of proper ethical conduct, which permits the segue now into the Epistle of James. You've been reading through the Epistle of James for the last uh, two or three weeks at least. And today we have a, a, a long sort of sermon on uh, the tongue and the small organ or the small thing that can produce big trouble and plenty of it. The paradoxical nature of the use of the tongue. When I was in seminary many, many years ago, we still had to take a class that the dean taught it when you were a first year, the first semester of being there. And it was called ascetical theology. Which, it, the, 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 that's the fancy word for how to say your prayers 1A. You know, you have to, you can be taught how to do this. In other words, what it is that you do, and there are various methods to do it. And so it was about all of the different methods that are used uh, to learn how to say your prayers. I've told you the one I use every day comes from a period in France in the 17th century where there were literally hair-raising pious devotions that people went through. But this one I particularly like, and it's called the Sulpician Method. 
Jesus before my eyes in adoration, Jesus in my heart in communion, Jesus in my hands in cooperation. So how do I keep the love of God in Christ before my eyes on a daily basis? How do I bring that into my heart in such a way as to be able to make certain resolves about my conduct and my life that day? And then how do I resolve to put it into my hands and do something about that? So that is a practice. Well, the dean used to talk about something in the course of this, lots of old-fashioned language that we don't use anymore, and he called it custody of speech. That it was important to practice custody of speech. And that meant just what James is talking about. How do you learn how to bridle your tongue? I suspect one of the most difficult areas that you and I have in our personal and daily life is with regard to gossip. It is so much fun. It is irresistible. There are some people who live to gossip, you know, to roll this stuff over their tongue and speculate about people's behavior and conduct or to draw these obscure connections that they have thought and ruminated about as they've laid in bed or lied in bed, you know what I mean, and thought about it. So that's one of the toughest nuts to crack with regard to that. But whenever I read a text like this, I think to myself, does this have any application to the way in which people live in 2012? And I expect one of the connections that I might draw is uh, to the uh, condition of the public discourse in this country. is appalling and it cuts through every the full range of political uh, dispositions so it hasn't got anything to do with uh, picking your favorite one for either the virulence or inappropriateness of what they say uh, there's nobody who is exempt from uh, making uh, speaking in a way that is intemperate and difficult and this has been made much more easy over the last many years through the internet, hasn't it, and through uh, the electronic media. Because you can be anonymous, you can say what you want, you can, you can engage in some of the most salacious conversation about people and groups uh, in, a, in a perfectly anonymous way, or assume that you're entitled. And the funny thing about it is that there are some people who are sufficiently gullible that when they re read it, they believe it's true. They actually believe that it's true, you know, because they read it. And so I think if James came back to life, he would probably say something like, you know what, we have to begin to uh, apply the appropriate discounts to what it is that we hear uh, in, in the public discourse uh, through electronic media and through other, through other means. My test is always, for some reason, almost every day I think about, what if my parents or my grandparents came back to life? And they were plunked down into the world as we know it. And they, they heard all this and saw all this. What would they think? And I suspect uh, my grandmother certainly would swoon. <laughs> 
She'd swoon. Oh, my God. I, dear, I have to go lie down. That's, that's what I'd hear. I'm serious, you know? Oh, it was, I was just so upset I, had to go, I had, just had to go lie down. That's the way I feel sometimes with all this. And James says, you know what? You have the power and the capacity to do this. Now, his sort of sermon here is directed to teachers, people who are uh, in public life or who do things. It's really people in leadership who he's saying, you need to be careful about the way in which you do these and the things that you say. And it's important that you do that, you know. My own personal view is, is that we tend to be less concerned about custody of speech, unfortunately, with those that we're nearest to and love the most. And so that's the hardest thing. And one of the things that uh, he's saying here is he's speaking to teachers, uh, but it's important for all of us to remember that too, because this cuts across everything. Now, in one sense, how this relates to wisdom is learning. Um, one, of the, one of the issues of practical wisdom has something to do with maybe there, I know there was a time in my life where I wasn't going to let anything go by. You know, I wasn't ever going to bite my tongue if I thought I needed to say something about something, whether it was in a family or in some kind of uh, workplace or something. If I felt keenly that this, you know, this was a matter of principle, that I was going to say something about this, that I had to insert myself into the, into the situation and got myself into more trouble than is even conceivable. So I think James is speaking about that sort of thing here and how prudent action and so forth is the case and maybe uh, coping with life in a way different than letting other people have it. You know? I began my ministry with a priest who was an absolute buzzsaw. And he had a temper that was volcanic. And from time to time, I would have to say to him, you know, this is, I mean, this is getting to be too much for me. I can't do, I mean, this is just not right. And he said, if you don't think I control, if you think that uh, I have a bad temper, you should see me when I'm not trying to control my temper. <laughs> right? Talk about self-knowledge. <laughs> so James is speaking about all of those things. And why custody of speech is, is so important. It does not mean that we should be exempted from uh, speaking truth to power. It does not mean taking, not taking principled positions. It does not mean being truthful and clear in your speech with everybody. That's what we're obliged to do. But we need to learn through the wisdom that we accumulate, the practical wisdom about how to do that, and maybe that has something to do with one of the definitions for wisdom, and that's simple cleverness. You know, learning how to do that doesn't hurt. It might help. Jesus today, uh, there's a lot of complicated biblical scholarly stuff that I'm not going to get into about all this. Suffice it to say that Mark has put together two or three disparate 
uh, sayings and other things of Jesus into one sort of editorial lump. But it, it, taking it as it's read, it has to do with Jesus speaking about the nature of the Messiah. After Peter confesses to Jesus and to those around that he is the Messiah. So think about this for a minute. The Messiah, the Deliverer, is the one that the people of Israel have been yearning to have come again to restore the halcyon days of King David and King Solomon, to uh, restore completely now what had occurred during the exile in Babylon and 250 years before this or more, uh, the people had started now to return to, to Jerusalem. By the time of Jesus, it was believed by many that the, the return from exile had not been completed and would be completed when the Messiah came. And the Messiah was understood differently by various groups. And in some way you could say there was the hope and yearning for a kingly Messiah, one who would bring some form of political and social cohesion and harmony, and a priestly Messiah who would restore the purity of the religious side of the people of Israel. So here we have Peter identifying Jesus as the Messiah. And so then Jesus begins to say, well, the Messiah is going to have to go through a lot of suffering and be killed and then rise again. And this is a... a uh, comment that is completely contrary to the conventional wisdom about who Jesus, who the Messiah is supposed to be. He's to triumph over everything. The idea that he's going to be to suffer and be persecuted and abused and killed is a completely unthinkable thing. So what does Peter do? He takes him to off his side and he begins to rebuke him for this. And that is the place where Jesus calls him a Satan. An advocate that Jesus, like all human beings, even though they don't like it and they lose their temper, now have to listen to, and it makes them feel that they may sort of cave in their resolve to live into their vocation. We've talked about this before. Isn't it true that when you say something and somebody pushes back, I know for me it is. If I say, well, this is what I think or this is what we're going to do and there's like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life, you doubt yourself. You think, well, maybe that wasn't the best thing in the world, right? So Jesus doesn't want to hear this either from Peter or anybody else. And he continues on. Now, when I read this, if I'm thinking about it in terms of the cultivation of wisdom, and I'm also thinking about the thing I say all the time, Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template we lay over our own spiritual development, then it's going to have something to do with the fact that if we, what do we do when we think about our vocation in a certain way and we're moving forward and we encounter resistance, difficulty, um, suffering, adversity, as the result of our emotional, spiritual, and mental commitments about how we are to live our lives. And what do we learn in that process about how to cope with it and about how to not forsake our vocation and to do what we need to do 
and at the same time have the internal self-regulation and strength to be able to move forward. So really, this is a way, this is sort of a commercial message for um, cultivating wisdom in the midst of the roughest circumstances, when you just assume not. So it has something to do with the idea of self-control. It has something to do with the idea of saying to yourself, you know what, even in the midst of all this, I'm going to proceed. Why is this important? Because Jesus is speaking here of the ultimate end, which is the resurrection. It means new life and transformation. My former bishop, Bill Swing, William Swing, who was a bishop of California for many years, used to say, uh, he would say, you know why I believe in the resurrection? Because I've experienced the resurrection in my own life. And I have seen the resurrection in other people. So when you say that, you begin to say, well, suffering, adversity, difficulty is uh, not unique to me. It wasn't unique to the Savior of the world. And by virtue of that, we learn something about uh, God's redemptive work. And people who saw that and believed in it said, you know what? In big and small ways, I can experience that in my own life. Not in some superstitious, mystical way, but in, in the way that said, you know what? It is possible now to get out through the other end here. So like in Proverbs, part of it has to do with my own making. And part of it has to do with serendipity. And the big part of it has to do with God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness for you, for each of you. So this week, give thanks for the opportunity to uh, share the practical wisdom you've learned with other people, if there's an opportunity to do that. See if um, there are any challenges operating in your life with, that, with, with regard to difficulty in, in uh, custody of speech. And uh, give thanks for God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Amen. Amen.